Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a very old association between astronomy and wells. And uh, this ties into uh, various ancient anecdotes and also archaeological sites. Uh, basically getting down to this idea that um, if you have a well, if you have a deep pit or even a long tube, that this could allow an individual to see starlight during the day. Had you ever heard of this, Joe? No, I don't think not before you brought this up. Yeah, this is and, and this is one that there was more to it the, the more I kept looking into it. Um, but instantly, it's kind of a captivating idea if you know nothing about it, because there's something about the two extremes in play here: the bottom of an earthly pit and the light of distant stars. You know, it, it reminds me of that, um, that, that far more recent quote by author Oscar Wilde in his play, uh, Lady Windermere's Fan, uh, which uh, even if you're not familiar with that source, you may have heard this, this particular quote. Quote, we are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. <laughs> well, that's a great sentiment. Yeah, I guess I take it to mean that Maybe one's character is defined not by the uh, not by where your body is, but by where your thoughts are aimed. Yeah. Now, one I guess starting place for this is that a lot of the, especially more recent writings you see in allusions uh, referring to this well astronomy uh, situation will frequently point out that okay, well you had uh, you had Aristotle mentioning it in passing, and of course Pliny the Elder mentions it. Um, so let's start with the, the Aristotle quote. Uh, he does mention it kind of as an aside, and it is in chapter 5 of the 4th century BCE text, Generation of Animals. Okay, so this is going to be setting up the, the relationship between looking out of a well or a tube and seeing the stars in the daytime. Right. So uh, this is what Aristotle says. Quote, The cause of some animals being keen-sighted and others not so is not simple but double. For the word keen has pretty much a double sense, and this is the case in like manner with hearing and smelling. In one sense, keen sight means the power of seeing at a distance. In another, it means the power of distinguishing as accurately as possible the objects seen. 
these two faculties are not necessarily combined in the same individual. For the same person, if he shades his eyes with his hand or look through a tube, does not distinguish the differences of color either more or less in any way, but he will see further. In fact, men in pits or wells sometimes see the stars. But uh, one of the, the curious things here, though, and this is ultimately the, like the hard fact that we'll keep coming back to in, in thinking about this, is that during the day, we cannot see the stars. Um, right. Uh, not, not, you know, not with the, the naked eye. And uh, I think I've read that like the, the brightest star, not counting the sun, of course, the brightest star in the night sky would have to be something like five times as bright for the human eye to see it during the day. So this is one of those things that, you know, just right from the get-go here, uh, it's not going to match up with any experience out there. Though if you have had the experience of standing in a pit and looking up and seeing the night sky uh, during the daytime, uh, certainly write in it and tell us more about this. But um, but for the most part, it, yeah, it goes against everything we expect to be true from our modern perspective. And yet, we see multiple references to this being a reality. And granted, a lot of these are secondhand. Uh, in, in the nature of a lot of these ancient uh, texts. Uh, for instance, Pliny the Elder, who's kind of a, a champion of the, the second or third-hand account of the natural world, he chimes in on this a little bit in uh, Natural History. Quote, The sun's radiance makes the fixed stars invisible in daytime, although they are shining as much as in the night, which becomes manifest at a solar eclipse, and also when the star is reflected in a very deep well. Oh, well, he's he's doing really good up until that very last part. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's something you. I mean, because first of all, a lot of this, a lot of the times, we're talking not talking about like you know just pure folklore here. We're talking about very learned individuals of their age, individuals who who uh, you know often knew something or a lot concerning uh, astronomy during their time, and they're chiming in on this as if it is true or said to be true. Well, I mean, he is absolutely correct that the stars are still shining during the daytime, just like they are at night. It's the, pro- the problem is simply that their light is drowned out by the glare of the sun. So it's mm-hmm. not as if, I mean, you, you might assume if you were just going by intuition that the stars turn off their lights during the day or something, right. or, you know, that they somehow disappear. No, they're still there. They're always there. We just can't see them because there's too much light from this other light source. Yeah, so so almost everything yeah, about that statement is corrected, but at the end, uh, he, he loses it. Now, one of the sources I was looking at for this is a 1953 paper by Aydin uh, Sayali, and this was uh, republished in 2007 by the Foundation for Science, Technology, and Civilization. So, Sayali, major Turkish science historian, so so uh, important that he's actually on a banknote. You can, if you look him up on like Wikipedia, you can see uh, see his face on currency. Wow! Uh, but but this is a very nice little overview of of this concept and touches on you know the fact that it not only pops up in the history of astronomy, but it also pops up in folklore and literature of various different cultures. And the idea is basically what we've been discussing, that one may stand at the bottom of a well or you know, something similar, like a great pit or some sort of natural formation of caves. And if you look up, you can glimpse the stars during the day. And Sayali writes that sometimes this is a, just a vague tidbit without any specifics, like it's just you know, alluded to, oh, one can do this and this has been done. But other times it's connected to specific individuals and times. So the author mentions several more examples here, and I'm going to touch on them here. So first of all, he points out that Greek astronomer uh, Cleomedes says that the sun appears larger when seen from the bottom of a deep cistern because of the darkness and the moisture of the air, though he does not make mention of actual, what we'll discuss in a bit, actual observation wells, uh, some sort of a well or deep shaft in the earth that is used uh, that is either built or repurposed or used for um, looking at the stars. Another individual he points to is the, uh, the, the writings of Islamic philosopher Abul Barakat al-Baghdadi, who lived 1080 through 1164 or 1165 CE. And um, uh, this individual actually wrote a text titled On the Reason Why the Stars Are Visible at Night and Hidden in Daytime. And in this he contends that it comes down to illumination of part of the atmosphere immediately above the observer. Uh, and he does not mention observation wells specifically either. 
And then you have Leonardo da Vinci also contending that the atmosphere is dense and full of moisture particles that, during the daylight, reflect radiance to obscure the stars. So, um, again, uh, there's another example. Da Vinci's not talking about observation wells. But Sayali contends that all three of these lines of thinking, quote, would seem to be in agreement with or even inspired by the claim that from the bottom of a well or in a tall tower, uh, which is to say at the bottom of a tall tower, uh, which would prevent the illumination of a portion of the atmosphere immediately above the observer, stars become visible in daytime. Okay, so I think I'm catching on to the intuitive current that's driving this. Might it be something like this? I can see the stars in the nighttime when things are dark. Therefore, darkness is what allows me to see the stars. So if I get down at the bottom of a well or the bottom of a tower where I can look out through the top, the dark environment that I have enclosed myself in will somehow like create the conditions of night where I can normally see the stars. Is, is it something like that? It seems to be. Again, this is something where it's <laughs> again this is it's it, this is not true this is not this does not seem to be exactly what happens uh, when one is standing in a pit looking up standing in a well etc so we can't we you know we can't break down the exact process of this because this is not a reality but right. uh yeah this seems to be what the, the basic argument seems to be like if you can as closely as pos possible approximate nighttime during the day for your local self and then look up at the sky maybe then you would see the stars, except that doesn't actually happen. Right. <laughs> but again, important, knowledgeable individuals were writing about this and repeating it, signal boosting it, if you will. Uh, you have, you know, ultimately had the likes of, say, Roger Bacon uh, mentioning it, seeming to be familiar with the concept. And multiple Islamic authors, according to Sayali, reference it. And, um, and that some of these points, these specific observation wells, not just in the generality of this being a thing. So a few examples of this. Um, Maraga Observatory, founded in 1257, uh, was said to be an observation well. But Sayali thinks this may be a mistaken reference, to, uh, not to the observatory, but to caves beneath the observatory that, quote, do not so far as is known form any vertical well. Another one he mentions is the uh, Jaja Bay um, Marasa of uh, Kushir, Anatolia, founded in 1272. Uh, this was used in, as an observatory and was said to have an observation well formed via a circular hole cut in the roof of, of the dome of the Madrasa building, and that this was for daytime star observation. Now, on this count, Sayali writes that there is evidence of there having been a well here. But, uh, but first of all, it was probably not dry, uh, and uh, this could mean that if it was used for uh, as an uh, as astronomical aid, it was so that one could look at the reflection of the sky in the water, and there are references apparently to this practice. Oh, okay, so this connects to, I think, the way that Pliny in particular phrased it as opposed to Aristotle, uh, because Pliny said that uh, you could see the stars reflected in a very deep well. And so I'd wonder there that there might be different uh, optical effects at play if you're not standing in the bottom of a well looking up trying to see the stars in daytime, but looking down at the water in a dark well to see if it's quote-unquote reflecting the nighttime stars even during the daytime. Right, yeah. So I think there could – it seems to be the case where you're dealing with – with uh, different um, reported phenomena becoming confused with each other, you know, like, yeah. can you, can you look up from, uh, from the bottom of a well and see the sky? Yes. Can you see stars? Uh, well, yes, potentially if it is nighttime, uh, but, but then that can be, you know, crossed into something else. Likewise, you could have a situation where, where the reflection in the well, in the well water could be used to see the stars at night, but that doesn't mean you can see them in the daytime. Now, a third example that Sayali brings up is the Istanbul Observatory, founded in 1579. And it did have, this particular site apparently did have an observation well or tower, and there is confirmation of this in both Turkish and European sources. However, the observatory was demolished not long after its founding, so uh, Sayali says it might never have been used, or we, you know, we just, there are no records of it being used. Uh, I saw some different dates on this. Perhaps it might have been founded in 1577, but it seems like it was destroyed in something like 1580, just a, a very short period later, and the destruction was possibly due to religious opposition to astronomy. Mm. 
So, so Ali mentions that there's a 1630 uh, mention of um, observers and students glimpsing the stars in the daytime from the bottom of a very deep well in Coimbra, Portugal. And there are also accounts from Spain, apparently. And then we have uh, an individual by the name of Erhard Weigel, a court mathematician to Duke Wilhelm IV of Bavaria. He had a house built in 1667 in Jena, and it was said to have a, quote, slanting tube built into the wall in order to allow the daytime observation of the stars. You shared with me a painting of old Erhard here, and this guy is such a mood. He's... Uh, I don't even know how to describe this. He, he, I mean, he looks like a very sensitive boy uh, posing for a photo with his dog, you know, like pointing to the dog, <laughs> except it's just like a big table of mathematical figures. Yeah, yeah. I, my first thought was like, here is a, a man who loves his maths. Yeah. Uh, it, if you look him up on, uh, say, Wikipedia, you'll see this particular painting. There are other images of him that are not, that don't strike the same uh, um tone uh, but mm. i do really like this painting it looks like he's like doing his little uh, equations and he's going who's a good boy <laughs> now sayali also mentions that the paris observatory founded 1667 uh, through 1675 featured a vertical hole which via the caves below formed a 55 meter deep well quote it was said that cassini shortly after the foundation of the observatory considered the possibility of its use for daytime observation of the stars as one of the brightest stars of the constellation perseus he said would come within the field of view of the well in approximately 40 years now this is interesting to to keep in mind talking about the field of view of the well uh because i think this can be this can be telling given some of the uh analysis out there uh cassini apparently used the well himself and had another well built, uh, but uh, the, around this time, Sayali says, astronomical advancements may have made venturing down into a well just increasingly obsolete. Um, however, Sayali mentions that there were rumors that a janitor at the observatory had a side hustle of taking people down in the, into the pit to glimpse <laughs> the stars. <laughs> what, what is this, the 17th century? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'm not sure exactly when this, uh, when the janitor's tale, this may, may have come later. Oh, okay. Yeah. But um, it, it sounds very uh, Edgar Allan Poe, doesn't it? Uh-huh. Uh, one more example that Sayali mentions is the um, uh, Kressmünster Observatory in Austria, founded 1748, that has a 59-meter deep well said to have been used as an observation well uh, as well. Well, given all of these uh, examples and, and anecdotes from history of people saying they could do this or building facilities in which to do this, I'm starting to have my doubts. I'm like, wait a minute, can you actually? I, I don't know. I mean, like, would all these people be building starlight tubes and, and observation wells and towers and stuff and talking about this all the time if there weren't something to this story? I'm, I, I, I'm having I'm, I'm doubting myself. Yeah, I, I had the same experience with it, and and Sialli is basically discussing the, the same thing. He's like, it would just be strange if this idea persisted for so long, and people did all of these things if there wasn't something to it, if there wasn't some factual basis to the whole enterprise. Uh, because you know, dudes are incorporating this into their house plans, you know. <laughs> Uh, but he, he does point out, yeah, there were there were there were certainly skeptics as well, including Alexander von Humboldt, who we've, oh. uh, we've discussed on the show before, old friend of the show, uh, he, the subject of a really great uh, biography by Andrea Wolf called "The Invention of Nature." I highly recommend. Very interesting. I'd say uh, von Humboldt was uh, very important for promoting a kind of. Uh, a, a, a total view of science that kind of uh, that, that connected all of the natural world together into a uh, a vast system of interlocking causes and effects, and viewed nature not just as discrete entities of here's this animal and here's this plant, but as an ecology, as a a, mm -hmm. a system of interactions in which everything af affected every other thing. Yeah. And so he comes along and, you know, he's evidently he's read about this and he's familiar with the concept. But then he's, he's, he says, well, I, 
okay, I spoke with, with chimney sweeps. I spoke with miners. Uh, I, I, uh, I've spoke with other people who had ventured down into, um, into conditions just like this. And apparently he sought those conditions out himself and he did not experience this. He was not able to see the stars. No one he spoke to had direct experience of having seen the stars this way. Uh, and, and he's just one of, uh, there are a few other historical critics of the notion as well that Sayali mentions. Um, but I, but I think Alexander von Humboldt probably the, the this is the one of the more robust ones, uh, coming along where he's just saying, yeah, nobody I spoke to has actually experienced this. And, uh, and, and ultimately Sayali, even though he's like, again, he's thinking there's, you know, people have been doing this and circulating this idea. There, there has, is there absolutely nothing to it. He does stress that, quote, although such wells were connected with observatories, there is no evidence that such observatories were systematically made and utilized by astronomers. So the whole practice could have been, you know, largely theoretical, uh, even, you know, in the ultimate basis for it could ultimately be more imagination than anything. Uh, but he thinks that the whole enterprise might have been connected more to focusing on particular areas of the, of the sky. So again, mm. come think, think about like what this would mean to stand at the bottom of a well and look up through the, the circular um, aperture of the well and behold the, the sky, uh, behold the sky at night to see the stars. You would, it would, in a sense, you know, it would limit what you could see. It would uh, take that just overwhelming starscape and limit it to just a single circle of observation. Yeah, maybe if you were trying to focus on particular stars as they pass through during yeah. the night or something, I, I don't know. And then likewise, I guess if you had a similar setup and you were looking at stars reflected in the water, you could, and it was very still water and, and the reflection was just right, you could have something similar going on. Um, but in terms of, yeah, basically anybody who, who comes up against this idea of it being somehow a way to, to see the stars during the daylight, uh, every, n- nobody ag- agrees that this is possible. Uh, for instance, this is, this is brought up in the book, uh, Bad Astronomy by Phil Plate, for example. Uh, and he also points out that Charles Dickens wrote of it as well. Uh, and he says that he's never heard a decent explanation as to why this would work. Well, one nice takedown of uh, of the whole uh, idea came from the Reverend uh, William Frederick Archdahl Ellison in the Journal of the British Astronomical Association in 1916, writing, quote, A very little scientific reasoning, even without experiment, will be sufficient to dispose of it. For what is it which hides the star in the daytime? It is merely the glare of our atmosphere illuminated by the sun's rays. As the atmosphere extends to a height of 50 miles or more above the Earth's surface, a shaft or chimney 100 to 200 feet high could do but little to take away that glare. And anyone who has ever actually looked up from the bottom of such a shaft, as I have from the bottom of a colliery, uh, this is a a British term, by the way, um, a coal mine and the buildings and equipment associated with it, 900 feet below the surface, must have been struck not by the darkness of the little disk of sky visible, but by its dazzling brilliance. And this is something that people come back to, is like if you actually seek out this experience of gazing up through a shaft at the the at the the the, the sky at the the daytime sky it's the sky's not going to be dark it's going to be super bright it's going to be overwhelmingly bright no i i totally agree with that 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 seems right to me i do have a, a counterposing idea mm-hmm. i i wonder if you were able to build a tower like some of these supposed observation towers that extended up beyond the top of the atmosphere <laughs> then that might actually work Ooh, I did not see anyone discussing this idea, this idea that through some sort of futuristic mega project, we might be able to make the the daytime a well observatory possible. Yeah, like you build a space elevator and it's just a, it's a <laughs> tube going up beyond the atmosphere. Even then, I'm not positive that would work. I think it probably would. Uh, I guess it might depend on where the sun is at the moment relative to, like, is any of the sunlight shooting down in there? Mm. So many commentators also speak to this whole notion uh, being predicated on a misunderstanding of what a telescope does, certainly in the, the later cases and later circulation of the idea. And that, you know, ultimately it's focusing more on the tube rather than the lenses, which are vital to the, the, the workings of a telescope. 
right? Not understanding that the purpose of the telescope is to gather light from a from a wider surface and then project that down into your eye to increase the resolution. One such commentator was Patricia O'Grady, who wrote on the subject in 2002 in a paper titled Thales of Miletus, The Beginnings of Western Philosophy and Science. Uh, she contends that such wells were used at night as a means of isolating portions of the night sky for consideration and study. Quote, descending into a well and peering up the extent of the well would isolate areas to be observed, and the rim of the well, being similar to that uh, to the tube about which Aristotle wrote, would be a sort of quote-unquote telescope, but lacking magnification. Hmm, yeah, okay. Yeah, so, um, I, you know, it, it's... There's so much more to this than, than I expected, but it seems like we can think of observation wells as being a mix of secondhand accounts signal boosted by important writers and thinkers during their times, backed up by hypothetical models, as well as the seeming at least limited use of such wells as a means of isolating portions of the night sky for study uh, at night. Yeah, that, that all seems reasonable to me. I'm still hung up on the idea that there could also be some kind of garbling of a report of an optical effect that somebody got from looking down at the sunlight reflected in water in a dark well and then maybe mm, yeah. ripples in the water or something i've never tried it so i don't know what that would be like but i could imagine that could look like many points of light instead of one yeah that's a good point shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, 
There's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Now, Rob, it's funny you mentioned this book by Patricia O'Grady about uh, Thales of Miletus. Because the other half of this coin, the idea of uh, a stargazer and a well, connects very directly to a famous anecdote about this uh, this philosopher. So Thales of Miletus was a pre-Socratic Greek philosopher who lived from the late 7th century to the mid-6th century BCE. He was one of the famous seven sages of Greece, uh, and he was revered by other ancient philosophers and writers as, in many ways, kind of the the primary patriarch of wisdom. He was thought to be, in a sense, the first philosopher, and in more recent centuries, he's been seen by some as, quote, the father of science, though I think both of those designations are uh, a good bit overstated, though Thales was a very interesting figure. Going to the idea of him being the, the quote, father of science, I, I would say in an informal way, there were empirical observations and experiments and deterministic theories of nature, of course, all going on before Thales, no doubt. But he was famous in ancient Greece for appealing to natural material causes rather than ad hoc mythological explanations when trying to understand nature and and the world. So, like many ancient Greek philosophers, from Pythagoras to Socrates, we actually have no surviving copies of any text by Thales himself. So, if he wrote anything down himself, we no longer have it. The only sources we have for his life and his work are what other people wrote about him, which of course makes it complicated to know with much certainty what he actually said and believed. So, Everything that follows that we're going to say about Thales comes with the the major caveat that it is based on secondary sources, often writing much later than Thales' own lifetime, uh, because it's all we have. Thales was known for wisdom in uh, not just uh, what we would later call science, but in many domains, including in in mathematics. He was famous for for bringing uh, uh, Egyptian geometry to to Greek thought and for philosophy and politics. He he was uh, given credit for the maxim, know thyself, which I have to say, I find one of the most powerful aphorisms of all time. You know, know thyself is two words long, and it really hits you. It's like a wrecking ball. Like It Mm -hmm. manages to be simultaneously empowering and humbling. And there's a whole rich tradition of other philosophers simply trying to explain what they think is meant exactly by the statement, know thyself. Is Is it an admonition to know your place and be humble in the face of the gods? Is it a, uh, is it a warning to know your own limitations? Is it an exhortation to, uh, to deeper philosophical understanding to understand what you are? In a way, maybe it's all of these things. Yeah, that's a, it's a great uh, navel gazer, that one. Uh, the, more, <laughs> the more you think about it, the, the slipperier it becomes. Now, at this time, there was not much of a division between what we would today call science and what uh, the ancient Greeks would call philosophy. It was it was sort of all the same thing. It was the, the pursuit of knowledge. But uh, I, I guess the more scientific version of ancient Greek philosophy would be the kind that focused on explanations of the natural world and appealing to natural causes. A lot of the science that Thales believed in has not exactly held up to later scrutiny. Uh, For just one example, he uh, was known for arguing that earthquakes were caused by the fact that the continents, the the land on which we walk, is actually part of a great great disk that floats on water, and sometimes the continents or the disk on which the continents rest are rocked by waves in the underlying cosmic ocean. Uh, For ancient accounts of this belief of Thales, uh, I want to go back to actually uh, Patricia O'Grady, the source you mentioned earlier, 
in her book on Thales. Um, she, for example, quotes Seneca, who says, The cause of earthquakes is said to be in water by more than one authority, but not in the same way. Thales of Miletus judges that the whole earth is buoyed up and floats upon liquid that lies underneath. The disk is supported by this water, he says, just as some big heavy ship is supported by the water which it presses down upon. Mm. And elsewhere, Seneca actually mocks Thales for his beliefs. Uh, he says, the following theory by Thales is silly. <laughs> for, he, for he says that this round of lands is sustained by water and is carried along like a boat. And on the occasions when the earth is said to quake, it is fluctuating because of the movement of the water. It is no wonder, therefore, that there is abundant water for making the rivers flow since the entire round is in water. Reject this antiquated, unscholarly theory. There is also no reason that you should believe water enters this globe through cracks and forms bilge. <laughs> okay. I will not believe in the bilge, Seneca. You've convinced me. <laughs> but also to continue with the ocean theme, Thales quite remarkably believed that the entire basis of matter was water. And it can be difficult to parse exactly what he means by this, but uh, I think it's commonly interpreted to mean that all matter is in some way a form of water. So much like liquid water can turn into vapor uh, or it can freeze into a solid ice cube, then it can take on other forms as well. And in fact, it does take on all the forms we see in the world. Every piece of matter is some type of water or is in some way derived from water. And, of course, this is wrong, but it does wander kind of close to a profound truth that would be discovered much later, which is that as fundamentally different as all the substances of the world, blood, magma, wood, air, as different as all these things might seem, they're actually made of exactly the same fundamental building blocks, not water, but the subatomic particles, protons, neutrons, electrons, in different quantities and arrangements. Mm. So he was wrong about the water part, but I do think it's still a rather profound hypothesis that at bottom, all matter is made of the same stuff. Now, coming back to the uh, designation that some authors have used for, for Thales as, quote, the father of science – I think one of the big stories leading to that designation, like I know this uh, was, uh, there was a piece at some point that Isaac Asimov wrote about this. Uh, the, the the connecting point here is that there are reports from the ancient world that Thales did occasionally make testable predictions that proved correct, such as in matters of astronomy, where the historian Herodotus claims that Thales correctly predicted a solar eclipse in advance, with profound geopolitical implications for for an ongoing war with uh, between the uh, the Medes and the Lydians. So to uh, to fill out the story a bit, I'm, I'm going to uh, describe and quote from Herodotus the translation by A.D. Godley. So uh, a bit of background. Herodotus tells us that uh, at some point in history, a, a tribe of nomadic Scythians escaped some trouble in their own lands, and they, they escaped into the territory of the uh, the Medeans, or the Medes, who were ruled by a king named Syaxares. The Scythians asked for mercy, and Syaxares granted it, and even uh, gave over some Median young men to the Scythians to, to sort of like live with them and learn their language and to learn archery from them. But there came a day when uh, the Scythians returned from a hunt with nothing to offer their new king. And Syaxares, being short-tempered, he took this uh, their, their lack of uh, game as an insult, and he gave them a really bad chewing out. I think the direct quote is, he treated them contemptuously. Mm. Uh, so in revenge for being dressed down, some of the Scythians took the the young Medes, their their pupils, and killed them and dressed their bodies and presented them to the king as if they were animals killed in a hunt. Then they immediately fled the domain of the Medes and went to the domain of a king named uh, Alyades of Sardis. All right, this is already spiraling out of control. This is a bad situation. Right. So Syaxares was tricked, and indeed he did eat the flesh of his young countrymen, thinking it was wild game. And uh, after he found out, he wasn't very happy about it. And he went to Alyades and said, hey, these guys made me do cannibalism. You need to give them over to me. Uh, so now I'm just going to quote from the Herodotus translation. Uh, 
After this, since Alyades would not give up the Scythians to Cyaxares at his demand, there was a war between the Lydians and the Medes for five years. Each won many victories over the other, and once they fought a battle by night. They were still warring with equal success when it happened at an encounter which occurred in the sixth year that during the battle the day was suddenly turned to night. Thales of Miletus had foretold this loss of daylight to the Ionians, fixing it within a year at which the change did indeed happen. So when the Lydians and Medes saw the day turn to night, they stopped fighting, and both were the more eager to make peace. Hmm. And apparently they did make peace by securing a, a marriage between the, uh, between the children of the two kings. Happy ending. There you go. Though I have to imagine there was a good bit of like, hey, remember when your dad did cannibalism <laughs> and then my dad helped the people who made him do it? There was still, probably still some bad blood. But, you know, you get a nice wedding ceremony in there. Uh, yeah. you know, it's well catered. You, it's going it's gonna, to uh, it calm a lot of the waters. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the story again is that Thales predicted this solar eclipse that interrupted the middle of a battle. Uh, he predicted it in advance. Later scientists have worked out that this must be a reference to the solar eclipse of May 28th, 585 BCE, because that's the only one within the right time frame that would have been visible at the place in question. And that does all work out. But... If it's true that Thales predicted the eclipse in advance, this is an absolutely extraordinary claim, and I think a lot of mo modern scholars have doubts about this story. So we know lunar eclipses, where the shadow of the Earth passes over the face of the moon, these have been predicted going way, way back, long before Thales. The court astronomers of ancient China and ancient Babylon uh, were able to figure out these patterns and draw up tables allowing them to predict lunar eclipses. But solar eclipses, where the moon passes directly between the Earth and the sun, blocking out the sunlight, these are much, much harder to predict, especially because they are localized to specific vantage points on Earth's surface. I mean, there, there are solar eclipses all the time, but living wherever you do, you don't see most of them. They're, they're on some other part of the globe. Yeah, like if you've scout, tried to scout one out for yourself, you may have encountered this situation where, you know, someone's like, hey, there's a solar eclipse coming up. And you're like, great, when can we see it? And it's like, well, uh, on this date, if we're in Arkansas or parts of Texas. Right. <laughs> uh, oh, there's a solar eclipse coming. We have to travel to Baffin Island. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. But that, that being said, I mean, if you have the ability to, to go witness a solar eclipse, under safe circumstances, uh, absolutely do so because it's uh, it's wonderful. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it, it is worth it. It's one of the most magical experiences of my life. Now, the first solar eclipses that we know for sure were predicted in advance came after we had much better astrophysical theories in hand. Uh, this would be in the early 18th century. The first case where we know for sure that someone accurately predicted a solar eclipse was on May 3rd, 1715, when English astronomer Edmund Halley of Halley's Comet fame uh, built upon the scientific revolution unlocked by Isaac Newton's theory of universal gravitation. Halley was a friend of Newton's, and he used Newton's new uh, theories to accurately pinpoint an eclipse that would be visible in London, and he, I think he got it right within a margin of about four minutes. Oh, nice. But Halley's prediction and all subsequent solar eclipse predictions, they require a lot of information that was, as far as we know, not available in ancient Greece. And unfortunately, no writings of Thales exist today, as I said, and Herodotus does not bother to mention the method by which Thales made this prediction. Uh, I don't think other authors who mention this, this story share any, any further insights either. Uh, and so we, and we also don't know what the level of precision of this prediction would have been, though. Uh, though Herodotus does say that it took place that year, which makes me wonder if it's possible Thales just said there will be a solar eclipse sometime this year and got extremely lucky. But ultimately, we don't know. We don't know what was going on here. If he actually did make the prediction and it was correct, did he just have an amazing stroke of luck, or did he have some kind of incredibly advanced? Uh, uh, type of uh, knowledge about astrophysics that nobody else at the time had, and he left no record of it. And as with the observation wells, we're, we're dealing with you know secondhand accounts and, uh, and and vague references here. 
Right. So also, we don't even know for sure it's true that he made this prediction, though Mm -hmm. it seems to be a widely attested story. And we do know the eclipse did happen. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I was reading about a few other uh, scientific uh, contributions of Thales. One source I was looking at was by W.K.C. Guthrie called A History of Greek Philosophy, Volume 1, The Earlier Pre-Socratics and the Pythagoreans. Uh, This was Cambridge University Press, 1962. And uh, Guthrie collects a lot of observations. He he writes that Thales made uh, uh, made. Uh, gave guidance about the relative usefulness of different constellations for sea navigation, pointing out that the uh, the minor bear, uh, the little bear constellation, was better than the great bear for finding the pole. And this story was related by Callimachus. Apparently, the use of uh, the minor bear was already in practice by the Phoenicians, and Thales showed why it was better than the Greek standard of Ursa Major. 
He apparently also is said to have used geometry to measure the dimensions of the pyramids and uh, and to show how you could calculate how far away a ship at sea was. And in summary, writing about the Thales' reputation in ancient Greece, uh, Guthrie says, quote, Once he had achieved in the popular mind the status of the ideal man of science, there is no doubt that the stories about him were invented or selected according to the picture of the philosophic temperament which a particular writer wished to convey. And so Guthrie goes on to describe an example of what he calls this, uh, quote, mutually canceling propaganda, which is the contrast between the story of the olive presses and the story of the fall into a well or into a pit. And these are given respectively by Aristotle and Plato. I'm going to start with the story of the olive presses, which we have from Aristotle. So uh, this is in Aristotle's Politics, translation by Benjamin Jowett. I'm just going to read directly. Aristotle says, There is the anecdote of Thales the Miletian and his financial device, which involves a principle of universal application, but is attributed to him on account of his reputation for wisdom. He was reproached for his poverty, which was supposed to show that philosophy was of no use. According to the story, he knew by his skill in the stars, while it was yet winter, that there would be a great harvest of olives in the coming year. So, having little money, he gave deposits for the use of all the olive presses in Chios and Miletus, which he hired at a low price because no one bid against him. When the harvest time came, and many uh, were wanted all at once, and of a sudden, he let them out at any rate which he pleased, and made a quantity of money. Thus he showed the world that philosophers can easily be rich if they like, but that their ambition is of another sort. <laughs> and you notice at the beginning that Aristotle said this uh, this financial device, he says, involves a principle of universal application. So Aristotle is actually saying, you know, the thing that uh, that Thales is doing this story is a well-known move. It's called monopoly. Uh, the exploitation of a monopoly is a standard, well-known commercial and political practice. And he gives examples having to do with like cornering the iron supply in a local area or something. Of course, the principle is if you're the only person selling something and it's in demand, then you can set whatever price you want. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, when a smart person figures out how to create a monopoly, how to be the only person offering a good or a service that is needed, they will use this to their advantage. I guess with the caveat of unless they're a philosopher who is above worldly concerns and will only gouge to make a point. <laughs> yeah, I love this. It's like there's like, hey, uh, um, hey, Thales, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? And he's like, oh, yeah, well, I could do that if I wanted to here. And he proves yeah. himself. And then it goes back to whatever he was doing beforehand. Right, yeah. So it portrays the Thales as worldly and full of potential for practical cunning, but simply lacking interest in financial gain unless it's to own the haters. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's one vision, one invoked vision of Thales. Uh, what's another one? Well, here's where we come back to the uh, the idea of the stargazer in the well. So Plato tells this totally different story of Thales. This takes place in Plato's Theaetetus dialogue. And if you've ever taken a, a logic or a philosophy course that tried to define the word knowledge, you might have encountered the Theaetetus because uh, I believe this is the one where Socrates builds up to a definition of knowledge as something like true belief with an account, sometimes paraphrased as justified true belief. So under this definition, to know something, to actually have knowledge, it means you have one, a belief, two, which is true, because if you believe something but it's false, that's not knowledge, and three, uh, it, it is something of which you are aware of a warrant for believing. So if you believe something and it turns out to be true, but you had no good reason for believing it, that's still not knowledge. Like if if I believe I'm going to win the lottery this year and then I happen to win the lottery this year, that was not knowledge. I had no good reason to believe that. I just I just got lucky. But anyway, the story of the stargazer in the well is actually a, a digression within this dialogue. Uh, so I'm quoting from the uh, Fowler translation of, of Plato here. So this is Socrates speaking, and, and Socrates says, 
Uh, take the case of Thales. He's speaking to somebody named Theodorus. Take the case of Thales, Theodorus. While he was studying the stars and looking upwards, he fell into a pit, sometimes translated as a well, and, uh, and a neat, witty Thracian servant girl jeered at him, they say, because he was so eager to know the things in the sky that he could not see what was there before him at his very feet. The same jest applies to all who pass their lives in philosophy." And you can't actually find these charges in their original form in uh, stuff like uh, Rob. Did you ever read the the Clouds by Aristophanes, the the play mocking Socrates? Uh, no, I don't think I did. Oh yeah, well, so it's a whole play is just vicious, brutal <laughs> mockery of uh, of Socrates and the school of philosophers of Athens, showing them to be absolute buffoons who are wasting their lives uh, just making up garbage about trivial and unimportant topics. And so, in a way, I wonder if the, you know this is kind of responding to that sort of criticism, uh, because yeah, it's the same kind of thing. It's like, oh, you know, you think you're so smart, but you actually just fall into pits all the time, or you, you mm -hmm. trip and fall in a well because you're trying to figure out uh, Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. Yeah, nothing you do is practical, and here's right. the proof: ha, you're in the bottom of a well. How'd you get there, old man? You must have tripped. It's also the classic, oh, philosophy major, huh? What are you going to do with that? <laughs> And then, so Socrates goes on to explain his view. I've made some abridgments to this section, but uh, I just want to read uh, part of what he says. Socrates says, Hence it is, my friends, such a man, both in private, when he meets with individuals, and in public, as I said in the beginning, when he is obliged to speak in court or elsewhere about the things at his feet and before his eyes, is a laughingstock not only to Thracian girls, but to the multitude in general. For he falls into pits and all sorts of perplexities through inexperience, and his awkwardness is terrible, making him seem a fool, for when it comes to abusing people, he has no personal abuse to offer against anyone, because he knows no evil of any man, never having cared for such things. So his perplexity makes him appear ridiculous, and as to laudatory speeches and the boastings of others... It becomes manifest that he is laughing at them, not pretending to laugh, but really laughing, and so he is thought to be a fool. When he hears a panegyric, uh, meaning like a sort of a, a sermon praising the virtues of a public figure, hmm. when he hears a panegyric of a despot or a king, he fancies he is listening to the praises of some herdsman, a swineherd, a shepherd, or a neat herd, for instance, who gets much milk from his beasts, but he thinks that the ruler tends and milks a more perverse and treacherous creature than the herdsman, and that he must grow coarse and uncivilized no less than they, for he has no leisure and lives surrounded by a wall, as the herdsmen live in their mountain pens. And when he hears that someone is amazingly rich because he owns ten thousand acres of land or more, to him, accustomed as he is to think of the whole earth, this seems very little." Uh, and he goes on and on at length talking about how, uh, you know, the, the common man might think himself uh, very important because he claims to trace his ancestry back to, to Heracles and Amphitryon. Uh, and meanwhile, the philosopher is like, uh, but, uh, but everybody has thousands of ancestors of all kinds. What does that matter? And so he just goes on and on listing all these cases of the concerns of regular people who are squabbling over like uh, – power and, and money and prestige and hierarchy and the philosopher who seems to them to be a fool because he cares not for those things. Mm. Now, I think it's interesting to sort of compare and contrast Aristotle's vision of the, the of Thales here versus uh, Socrates's vision of Thales. Both essentially assume that true philosophers, and I think the modern reader might, might sort of uh, – read this in a more inclusive way, just as the thoughtful person, thoughtful people, mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that they are above petty worldly concerns, but the olive press story communicates a kind of deliberate aloofness, which can be subverted and, and cast aside any time when some wisecracker comes along and says, you know, like you said, Rob, Hey, Thales, if you're so smart, how come you're not as rich as me? The point is here, well, Thales could be if he wanted to. That's just not his concern. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the story told uh, in, in, the, in Plato's dialogue here, Socrates makes it sound like falling into the ditch and being mocked by the Thracian girl, it does communicate the same kind of aloofness, but in a more helpless and involuntary mode, like 
well, okay, yeah, he might be so wrapped up in the stars that he falls into pits all the time, and he's always ending up at the bottom of wells, but that's actually a sign of a virtuous mind, concerned with the stars and concerned with the nature of reality, rather than the nasty pettiness that occupies your mind, all of the uh, the grubby business and politics and and uh, and social gossip and hierarchy that you're so obsessed with. Which is funny, though, because it essentially comes down to these philosophers putting themselves at the top of a hierarchy and saying, mm-hmm. like, you know, my, my, my life of the mind is inc- so much more virtuous than your existence. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's in a both little cases, bit of hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah in both cases, the, the philosopher is, is disconnected from this world. And, uh, you know, it, it basically just comes down to the nuances of what you're saying about that. Like, it's... it's, it's uh, they're disconnected from this world, yes, but if they wanted to game this world like other people, they could easily. Or, you know, even if they're falling down wells, it's like, yeah, uh, uh, he's not concerned with wells and pits. Oh, you're so obsessed with the well thing. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting how this ties back in because, um, you know, Thales is said to be an individual who is very interested in the stars. Uh, here he is falling into a well. And... Um, and indeed, some have looked at this, in particular, uh, that, that paper I cited earlier, and you also cited this author, uh, Patricia O'Grady, um, looks at this and, and says, yeah, this connection between a, an, a, an individual who, is, uh, who, who analyzes the stars and fall in a well that they fall into, perhaps this is, uh, is also connected to the idea of a well being an observatory, and Thales may have uh, and again, we're dealing with second accounts and fictionalized and, myth- and mythologicalized versions of reality. Uh, but on some level, maybe you have this individual falling into a well because that's the kind of place that um, uh, that astronomers and philosophers go to. They're climbing to the bottom of a well to look up at the stars. And and I don't know, it kind of falls, that, that, that kind of just that basic vision uh, kind of falls into these uh, these these views of philosophy uh, that we've been discussing. Well, another theme that emerges for me is just the the tenuous and artificial nature of the distinctions between practical and impractical knowledge. That knowledge mm-hmm. uh, that knowledge which seems impractical today may, in several hundred years, become incredibly practical. The yeah. astronomy and the geometry of of these ancient Greek philosophers might have seemed absolutely ridiculous and and of no practical use whatsoever to. Uh, to somebody at the time, but then they would sort of uh, be built upon in generations to form the foundation of all existing technology, navigational techniques, and you know everything like that. Hmm, yeah, yeah. I'm also suddenly struck by how uh, how one could conceivably compare uh, a stylite, a uh, you know an individual, like a hermit atop a pillar, uh, mm. to the idea of a. Of an astronomer crawling down to the bottom of a pit, uh, you know, both are, are kind of like they're, they're removed from from the surface world, from the uh, from the affairs of man, and in either case, it's about you know c- contemplating things beyond the realm of man. This is funny. I, I've thought of potentially doing something about the the stylite tradition on our on our show before. I can't remember. Has it ever come up in an episode? It was like it's a particular type of asceticism where mm-hmm. you would. Uh, you know, you would subject yourself to just living at the top of a pillar. <laughs> yeah, saying. yeah. I feel like it's come up. I don't know if we did. Yeah, uh, I feel like it's come up at, at least once, but I don't remember the context. Maybe when we were talking about uh, Diogenes and living among the dogs. Oh, Diogenes the cynic. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, living in a jar with some dogs, eating fava yeah. beans, <laughs> or not fava uh, lupins. I think. Okay. I'd forgotten about the bean consumption. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I've actually got a, a call to listeners. I'm curious if, if you're somebody out there with uh, with a, a good basis in astronomy and physics, um, what do you think is the most plausible scenario by which Thales could have truly predicted the 585 eclipse? If the story is true, if he actually made the prediction and it was not just a lucky guess, but actually justified true belief that he had a warrant for believing that, what could it have been? Yeah, write in, let us know. Uh, likewise, if you have any thoughts about the, uh, the, the concept of, of glimpsing the stars from the bottom of a well, the bottom of a pit. All right, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode. But yeah, we'd love to hear from everyone. Uh, core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind published on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. 
Listener Mail on Mondays, Artifact or Monster Fact on Wednesdays, and on Friday we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.